0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk
1: About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
0: Shopping and gear in
1: RPGs. Bugged Mobiles secret tweets. Writings about writing. And the Voynich Manuscript.
0: Our anchor sponsor
1: this week is author Stephen Jankowitz. His works include Tolkien-inspired fantasy suitable for adults and for young adults.
0: Relevant to the interests of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff fans, however, are his weird tales in the Lovecraft tradition.
1: His first anthology, The Muse of the Monstrous, introduces you to such weird figures as a vengeful housemaid, an occult whaling captain, and a scientist who makes a pact with a forest shambler.
0: His latest is the sensual but disturbing Medusa the Drowned and Other Tales.
1: Journey with him to Opium Dens, the creature-beswarmed corners of upstate New York, and the depths hidden beneath the city of Bath.
0: Head to Amazon to find his work in ebook and paper formats. Follow the link from our site. That's Stephen Jankowitz, author of Medusa the Drowned and Other Tales, and The Muse of the Monstrous.
1: The rattle of dice, the yelping of aggrieved half-orcs, and the sight of a copy of Frampton Comes Alive inexplicably left out on the end table takes us back to the gaming hut, perhaps even the gaming hut of yesteryear, when all of our game patterns were formed willy and or nilly, including the mysterious pattern that involves stopping the game for an hour to fill out (laughs) your choice between high hard boots and low soft boots, Robin, Which boots do you prefer, and do you prefer to spend an hour doing it?
0: Uh, Well, before I tell you that, I just want to indicate on the subject of scouring a dangerous urban environment for a scarce resource that other people are also trying to get, Uh, I have to acknowledge that the Mm. Rob Ford story uh, has taken uh, some huge turns uh, since we last dropped a Rob Ford segment on you, which was not that long ago. And in fact, I suspect through our magical powers, we caused all of those shoes
1: to finally drop. I don't think it's unlikely at all that uh, Canadian law enforcement was just waiting for Cartas to cover it before they went ahead.
0: Indeed, yes, they were hoping for a little bridging segment between the globally covered events and the current globally covered events. But so I'm going to we're going to wait until this crazy story, which uh, as we're recording this, there are new developments <laughs> yeah. by the hour.
1: <laughs> it keeps getting better, people.
0: I, I need a little monitor in the corner to ignore Ken and instead see what the latest press conference is going to be. So I, we're going to wait until things kind of settle out and hopefully achieve sort of some sort of an end point before we uh, descend yet another Rob Ford segment on you but boots I did not forget boots so yeah I wanted to tackle the question of uh, the role of shopping in role-playing games and why we love it and how we can make it more interesting if we don't set it aside altogether because there are people in every group who like shopping it may often be one or two people in every group who love shopping and I want to sort of explore why that is. And the background for this is that I'm working on a new thing, um, and it's the basic rules engine for a tablet-based role-playing game from Slabtown Games, and it's called Storyscape. You'll hear a little bit more about that later on, because they're coming on board as a sponsor of the show. But it is uh, much more of a standard take on gaming than some of my more recent designs are, and therefore have to give you at least the option, which you can choose to ignore because you have a lot of options up front, as to whether to, for example, pay attention to encumbrance, or to, in this case, make shopping easier, but still there for people who enjoy it. So the design question, and I don't want to get too much into the details of how I went about solving this, uh, is why do people like this? And how can you make it matter? Because often you will get a cool list of things that you can shop for. And it's sort of an interesting little peek into the world. The 13th age shopping list is particularly kooky. Uh, You can get by, for example, a cat that's guaranteed not to be possessed. The question then becomes,
1: (laughs) how do you... But it's better to get one um, uh, from a rescue, whether it's possessed or not, I think.
0: Right. Uh, So the, the question is, How? why is this fun? Uh, and how to make sure that that, if you spend an hour doing it, how to make it actually matter later on. So, Ken, why do you think this is fun for the people who find it fun?
1: Well, I mean, I I know that I found it fun back in the day when the entire magical world of D&D was wonderful and new, and I didn't know that, you know, not buying uh, 10 flasks of, uh, of flaming oil was, you know, going to uh, be an oversight that got me killed in the dungeon, and I I very carefully pored over the difference between a dart and a quarrel and whether or not it was a better idea to have something you could fling with your hand in case your crossbow got broken. And I, I probably uh, statted out the ideal mule pack of, you know, everything that a mule could carry in D&D encumbrance so with sort of a, a Boy Scout attention to detail and being prepared. Um, it was fun at the time because it was part of sort of the core activity of, you know, making sure you could survive. And back in the day when we ran... Dungeons and Dragons, if you didn't have it, you know, you didn't have it, and you had to make sure you had all of your iron rations, you had to make sure that anytime you wanted to use some sort of lame excuse to get out of the encounter, you had to be able to justify it with something that was written down on your character sheet. And I think what you said earlier about it being sort of a, a view into the world of the of, of the game is another sort of, it's a, it's a reason that people like to do it, because it sort of involves them, uh, you know, into the fiction in a way that just reading a, a short vignette or even building the character doesn't necessarily. I think that um it can also just be a fun activity in itself. I mean, Amazon knows how much I love just shopping for things that I actually want. So if I'm putting myself sort of in the mode of my character, I could imagine that maybe a more highly immersive player might be more interested in what kind of uh robe their character picks up and whether or not it has, uh, you know, uh, uh the right kind of fringe on it or, what kind of uh, herbs can go into its herbarium, that kind of thing.
0: I think you've zeroed in on a whole bunch of the reasons why people enjoy vicarious shopping. Um, and uh, one of them is the flask boil syndrome. So in uh, D&D 1, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, there was a bit of a hosy bit where you were much more effective to carry a bunch of Molotov cocktails down into the dungeon with you and hurl them at your enemies until you ran out of flasks of oil than to use the relatively meager damage resources of your weapons and spells. And so if you were acute enough to spot that in the list of shopping gear and use it, it sort of wasn't flagged. But once you figured it out, you discovered a classic exploit in the system. And that gave you all of the fun of sort of putting one over on the game system which is the fun of finding any exploit and it made you survivable at the fragile low levels
1: of early D&D and it's just neat to imagine lighting a molotov cocktail and tossing it at a bear i mean that's just that's just fun regardless of what you do it in.
0: exactly and so th- if we didn't want to zoom out from that a bit the One of the appeals of it is that by possibly having the right item of gear, that you will unbalance the system in your favor. And so one of the promises of going shopping is the promise of finding an exploit, which is maybe another segment unto itself. It's the uh, fun inherent in a system that has seemingly broken or unbalanced things in them and how much balancing a system actually ruins fun for a percentage of people. Um, You've also got, uh, you're mentioning, you know, you had to make sure you had your iron rations or you had to make sure you had your rope and your pole in order to do certain things. So in that case, buying certain items of gear is you're buying permission to act and that if you do not have those items, you do not have permission to do things. And in a dysfunctional way, that is a problem insofar as you're basically having to go through this extra step of paperwork in order to have permission to move forward into the narrative. And so that's one area where today I think that most designs try to avoid a, that kind of a gotcha where do you remember to put rope on your character sheet? Oh, well, you can't do this. You're screwed. There are a number of reasons not to do that sort of level of gotcha play, which is you're uh, being punished for, do- for not doing something boring, assuming that chopping is not interesting to you. Um, and it's also, you know, it's a roadblock in the storyline, and that's something that today's sort of best practices, I think, uh, try to avoid.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the caveat, you know, assuming that it's uh, not fun for you is, is the thing. And then, of course, there's sort of an allied sense. I mean, it's sort of half flask of oil problem and half permission situation. And I think a good bit of it is also vicarious uh, fantasy tourism that, you know, gear is important to a lot of these genres. I mean, it, it wasn't particularly important to Conan the Barbarian or even to uh, Tolkien, Uh, Alemba spread aside. But, you know, anyone playing, for example, a spy game is going to be influenced by, you know, making sure that they've got a you know, at the very least a grapple gun and, and one hopes other awesome James Bondian type equipment or they're going to hope that they have some number of, of trackers to put on the back of a car, whatever else. I mean, gear is a is a fundamental bit of a lot of our founding genres you know, from, you know, the uh, steaks and crucifixes and garlic for your uh, vampire hunting horror guys to your uh, deck and your cyber eye, you know, whatever the hell for your uh, Shadowrun cyberpunk guy.
0: Right. And, and there are two ways in the genres that we're emulating that gear c- comes into play. And the first one, we could look at James Bond as the model of that, where the item of gear follows a setup payoff formula. So the scene in which Q gives you the piece of gear and describes it to you is the setup And then later on, when Bond uses that gear, um, almost invariably in a surprising way, um, unless it's, you know, not executed well, but (laughs) if it's executed well, you're surprised. Um,
1: Perhaps ideally is the word you want, not inevitably. Ideally, yeah. Um, So that it's it's like the
0: beginning of a joke and the punchline. And that is different than the experience of spending an hour pouring over different Bond gadgets that you could buy, and then buying 12 of them, and then maybe using three of them over the course of your campaign. The other type of gear is just sort of the incidental gear that doesn't need to be introduced ahead of time, as, for example, Van Helsing's anti vampire pack with his steaks and his garlic. If you are sufficiently immersed in the vampire genre in a latter-day Van Helsing story, you can have him pull out the garlic and steaks when he needs them and, and use them or be thwarted from using them. If it's the first vampire story you've ever seen, uh, is there a scene in Stoker where they uh, unpack their anti-vampire kit and describe how these objects can be used against vampires?
1: Uh, Stoker is not writing a techno thriller, so there's no loving attention to detail, but uh, Van Helsing, there is a scene where Van Helsing sort of explains to the reader, who of course has never read anything like this in any fiction in English uh, at all, how you kill a vampire. I mean, this was, you know, cutting edge, uh, terrific uh, cultural tourism when Stoker was doing it. And so there's a long lecture by Van Helsing about the weaknesses of vampires but no, there's no sig- there's no sort of signature scene where they lay out all the gear and, and pack it Joel Schumacher style into their web belts.
0: So in both cases, you have a fictional model where there isn't a long shopping sequence. And in fact, if you think of shopping montages in fiction, you tend to get them as actual you know, their bonding moments, their emotional moments in which the gang comes together. And, uh, you know, you have your outlaw couple on the run who get their uh, first chunk of cash from the bank robbery and then they go on a spending spree. Well, that's not usually about them acquiring gear that they will need to succeed later, but it's about expressing something about the togetherness of those two characters and this moment of wild abandon that occurs before the inevitable arm of fate and the law come down on them. So, if we are to have your hour-long shopping from a list, is that actually the ideal way, in a general sense, to deliver what gear acquisition scenes in fiction deliver?
1: Well, I think that you know one of the things that you're leading there is scenes of actual shopping, which I don't think anyone particularly does in Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, once you've bought your one cloak, you never go and buy nine more cloaks to hang in your castle or once you've bought your castle you don't then go rushing around and buy every stick of furniture for the rooms uh, besides saying I want your finest mead you're very seldom you know engaging in foodie extravaganzas in the tavern so th- the shopping as cultural signifier sort of thing that both James Bond does and that uh, your your paradigmatic shopping montage scene does is slightly different from the equipment assembly uh, montage that uh, You you know, for example, you you point out that James Bond does as Setup and Punchline, and that I would argue that caper movies, since you mentioned, you know, people are doing bank robberies, there's a lot of caper movies in which the acquisition of the gear with which to run the caper has a loving montage quality to it or a loving uh, assembly quality to it. That, right, or even
0: becomes a series of obstacles unto itself. Right, that, so. that,
1: that could be characterized as Setup and Punchline, but also is characterized as sort of immersing the viewer into... The fictional world of the criminal so that when someone says, "Uh, we're going to need a KG-700 diamond water cool drill for this, everyone's like, yeah, the KG-700 that's the best one, cool.
0: Right, and the classic example of that is from the uh, Clooney Pit Ocean's Eleven where the Don Cheadle character needs to get a pinch, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a deus ex Machina machine that uh, delivers an electromagnetic pulse, and you actually see them go and get the pinch, and that it establishes a relationship between the two characters who go to complete this secondary pre-heist. So that's an example of if gear is to be really important in your adventure and really matter and you want it to pay off, you can have an initial obstacle that, you know, it was difficult to get it, and then whether you're able to use it successfully or not has a greater charge to it when it finally comes into play.
1: Yeah. Although, uh, again, in Ocean's 11, also Bernie Mac's, uh, scene where he buys the vans is a character establishing scene for Bernie Mac, who up until then has sort of just looked like a goof and hasn't really been a, a, you know, sort of pulling his narrative or tough guy weight in the, in the 11 crew. And then when he sort of intimidates in the classic gumshoe sense, intimidates the, uh, the car dealer into giving them all those vans, For a a relative little money. First of all, it sets up, you know, his character, and then it also has the payoff when you figure out how many vans they're going to be, you know, shell gaming around this, this heist. So it, it can add a character moment. And I think that some degree of brand identification and character tough guy creation happens during shopping for a lot of players that they're like, well, I think an assassin should have soft boots in my anti-paladin should have hard boots because he's badass you know that kind of uh response I, I i'm not sure that that happens twice or three times and i'm not sure that anyone does more than one big hour-long shopping extravaganza with the uh with, with the full gear list i mean they may have a goal of i need to buy a mule or i need to buy a you know a bunch of healing potions but i'm not sure that you get the full-on D shopping montage experiment experience rather more than you know As you're sort of initially figuring out what you're carrying into the dungeon, then it's more like just checking off, yep, another 10 flasks of oil.
0: Right. Often you will get your initial buy of stuff, and then there's the moment when the player characters get their first hoard of loot, Mm -hmm. and then they go shopping again for cooler stuff. And that is an emotional payoff because that is them taking this sort of nominal or abstract reward and turning it into gratification in the world. In both instances though, I think what you're pointing toward is something where you could squeeze more juice out of the shopping sequence by saying, what does your purchase say about your character? And so for that early gear acquisition, you can ask each player in turn to say, what was the hardest thing to get? And why was that hard? Or, what is the thing that your character most values in his kit? And sort of bringing that sort of singular experience of each individual player interacting with the gear list into something that enters the broader interface and that other players in the GM then become aware of, and also something that serves a purpose other than its own little singular moment of solo game that you have once or twice early on and then abandon. If it's something that's happening early on in your campaign, those are really the moments that you want to get the most out of. And you want to find some value out of the time that everybody sinks in them.
1: Yeah. I think that any excuse to establish a character point is good. And certainly, you know, we've all had that one group where one character is buying a pig because they See it on the thing, and they have four silver pieces left over, or whatever it is and then what the character does with the pig sort of becomes a character setup up moment for the pla- for the player and for the character, and maybe the pig gets to you know run forward and scout out orcs or maybe the pig gets a name, and you sort of imbue an abstract piece of gear, and it doesn't have to be a pig in in some games it might be you know someone's uh someone's hat or whatever but it's there's always the there the, not always there's often that sort of moment where the gear becomes a story component and a character moment. And I think that, yeah, I think in general, you should be encouraging everything in the game to be a character moment down to, you know, spending XP or any other piece of accounting should be, you know, when you spent that XP, you know, who did you train with and what was his name and why was he happy with you or disappointed with you at the end of the process?
0: And in the case of gear, there's also, it is a reward for acquiring a resource in the game and the resource is money. And from, one game system to another money is more or less of a balancing factor again the classic dnd example is that it takes you a while as a fighter to afford plate mail and that then the moment where you get plate mail and are harder to hit uh, became a real sort of watershed moment but then it's another thing that sort of falls away in the way that early dnd has very different experiences along the way as you build your way up the power curve and that whether you have plate mail or not means nothing to you when you move on into the game. But there's that uh, big, exciting moment where here's this uh, game mechanical feature that you can only acquire through this one resource, which is uh, not necessarily integrated with the entire rule set all the way through.
1: Yeah, although um, uh, calling out the shopping system as being uniquely unintegrated in Dungeons & Dragons, I think is perhaps unfair, given that none of the systems are particularly integrated.
0: Right, it's it's part of a whole uh, constellation of, uh, it's sort of a different stations of gaming experience that you go through as part of D&D, that it's uh, very, you know, disaggregation is not a, a bug necessarily, although later designs have treated it as such, that that may, in fact, be part of what makes that a long-lived game that people want to play for a long time, is the fact that it is, actually a whole bunch of different games that mutate out of and, and into one another.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, the notion that, you know, even in its classic form, Dungeons & Dragons, was at least two games, and more often two or three games, is is fairly well established in the critical literature. There's, you know, like before and after plate mail, which is roughly the same time as before and after fireball. And those are, you know, sort of coming-of-age moments for your player character. And then, you know, depending on the campaign, there might be another moment where, you either get to you know whatever epic tier is, or you uh, which origin in original D and D meant you retired and turned the reins over to the next first level guy to come along, but um, it you know uh, post that has been now's the time to go get Mjolnir from Odin or do planescape walking or some other thing that you know blows up the world. Now that you're basically able to whack anything in the conventional Dungeons and Dragons universe,
0: right? And that illustrates something else that gear does, which is that it's a way of differentiating character types in systems that have strong delineations between character types is a desirable feature, so that the fighter's ability to muster resources in the game is more about money and equipment than, for example, the, uh, the clerics or the magic user who they're accumulating different resources as they go along. And there's certainly lots of other games where so there's the techie character and the fact that he has a lot of gear and has mastery of that gear is the thing that distinguishes him. And of course, ideally, you're going to have the character who likes shopping and pouring over equipment lists be the player who's taking on that role.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, that's the I guess that's the goal anyway, is to, if you've got a a strongly class or role-based system, that, you know, you are able to match those classes or roles with that type of player. And I think that's you know, to some extent, you can trust players to ad hoc gravitate because the guy who wants to play the ninja is going to play the ninja in whatever it's called in the game, and the player wants to play the samurai. Likewise, but I think you've got um, you've got a real. I, I think what part of what you know the shopping experience did back in the old day was even those characters that were not minutia minded and would then gravitate to being the wizard or magic user those characters still got a little of that fun of that sort of you know i mean if you if you remember way back in the day original uh first edition ad and d there was lists everywhere i mean guy gax loved lists and he loved little names and he loved little weird pieces of 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 uh, word uh fun and then so i i think sort of integrating with those lists on a meta level is part of what let you feel like you were integrating with the game all the time. And the DM obviously got to integrate with more lists than the players did, but the players, they had plenty of them and, you know, giving that long list of gear along with the long list of weapons, you know, the Bardiche and the Glaive and the Glaive G's arm and the Vulge. And, all, you know, we could just do 15 minutes on ridiculous guy, Gaxian uh, pole arms. But I think that that engagement with the list is part of a, it, it's sort of a common tribal tradition that people who are playing first edition D and D, they really got to be in a land of lists and I think that to some extent it's just sort of a, a cultural marker and it's no more or less strange than some, you know, Maori warriors getting tattoos when they become men. It, I think a lot of it is the same sort of initiatory ritual for the player regardless of what it means for the character.
0: Right. And it becomes a an issue when not everybody in the group is as interested in shopping as one another and the characters who are interested in shopping are for whatever reason Uh, unable or unwilling to do it as homework between Mm. sessions (laughs) and other people are sitting there waiting for them so um, the ideal thing is just to say to the tech to the gearhead guy make sure you do your shopping for next week Uh, a way to speed that up though would be to just say okay your character has gone off shopping we didn't see what your character bought you tell me how much you spent and then as you need things in the course of the adventure You can just say, oh, well, yeah, of course, I bought rope. And then you can add rope to your character sheet when you hit that obstacle and tick off the expenditure from your budget so that you are not taking that chunk of time and you're getting your gearness in little hits when it really already matters in the story. And uh, you could, as a GM, go through that list and go, well, let's create an obstacle where having an unpossessed cat actually matters and they can feel clever either for buying the unpossessed cat ahead of time or more likely in this scenario, uh, saying as they arrive at the situation where they need it, of course I have a bag with an unpossessed cat in it. Naturally you've heard it meowing this last uh, 25 leagues of our arduous journey.
1: Yeah. Although, um, to some extent that can be generalized up to any non, uh, sort of non core activity or non, uh, major confrontation episode. Uh, Crafting magic items or researching spells in Ars Magica or uh, building out your um, haven in um, Vampire or your cell in Conspiracy X or your chancel in Ars Magica or Mage. I mean, all of these sorts of non-adventuring things are, to one or another player, part of what the meat of the game experience is. And I think that they all build common player identity and tie players into the game. So it seems sort of a shame... To send them off to be homework, where the real business, uh, you know, of, of of dungeoneering can take place in, on the main stage. I think that a much better answer is what you suggest: either to do it as a sort of a mute preparedness into it, or make it a uh, make it a character moment, like you were suggesting earlier, when they do the shopping. Make sure that there's still character action happening on screen for the putative viewer, who for whatever reason keeps tuning into this ridiculous television show about dungeon delvers,
0: Right, and and the thing is just to make sure that it's not a bunch of people siloing separately, but are interacting somehow. So if it's a group of people designing their headquarters together, that's fine and dandy. That might not be something that you would ever see in the TV series of your campaign, but it's still fun cooperative activity that everybody gets to take part in, and it becomes an issue, uh, as I suggested earlier, when it's one person is having a solo experience while everybody else is twiddling their thumbs or I guess these days checking Twitter.
1: Although there's plenty of solo experiences to be had in gaming, but I suspect that is a different visit to the gaming hut away.
0: New topic alerts, switch to new segment. Slabtown Games is proud to announce the Kickstarter campaign for their new tablet-based tabletop role-playing game, StoryScape.
1: StoryScape introduces an exciting new breed of role-playing game system, featuring an innovative system of game mechanics designed by none other than fledgling newcomer Robin D. Laws.
0: StoryScape takes the scout work out of gaming by putting the charts, math, and number crunching under the hood, letting you spend more time gaming and less time interacting with the
1: rules. It's designed to be universal and easy to expand, and will allow you to play in almost any genre you care to name.
0: Starting with the fantasy build, which of course is the most in-demand build for any role-playing project, Game Masters will be able to fine-tune settings and difficulty levels, so whether you prefer heroic high fantasy or gritty dangerous noir, StoryScape can make it happen.
1: StoryScape is chock-full of easy-to-use, lightning-fast features and tools for Game Master and players alike. From virtual miniature creation, to the fog of war, to automated journals, all of it inside your tablet.
0: The built-in StoryScape Marketplace will give you access to the best adventure settings and campaigns created by Slabtown Games and by other users worldwide, and will also let you put your own creations up for sale.
1: The StoryScape Kickstarter is your best chance to get your hands on exclusive content and beta access for your gaming group. Head on over to www.slabtowngames.com and check it out.
0: And that new segment is alarm festooned indeed, for we have gone through the security perimeter and once again entered the precincts of the Tradecraft Hut. And We're going to do a bit of a roundup of national security in the news, uh, starting out with uh, another sort of update segment on uh, PRISM and the widening awareness of just how much information the NSA and its buddies are scooping up. And so, Ken, we've got a situation now where... Uh, world leaders have become concerned about this now that they know that it's happening to them, Uh, particularly the case of Angela Merkel and her uh, cell phone, which is interestingly uh, one of her cell phones that the uh, NSA has been bugging for years and years is actually her uh, party cell phone, not her government cell phone. The most interesting part of this story actually is that Angela Merkel apparently has several levels of mastery in texting, and she is so good at it that she can covertly text somebody on the other side of the room at a reception while seeming to be engaged with the person she is talking to.
1: Well, I think when you grow up uh, in East Germany, you learn a lot of covert communications methods that, uh, that people do not learn nowadays.
0: Uh, indeed. And so a lot of the res- response to this has been uh, to, quote, the Claude Rains character Captain Renault in Casablanca, and I would hope people are shocked to find out that there is a gambling going on in the casino, but that I think the scale of how easy it is now to scoop up other people's information is really beginning to hit home with uh, the ruling elite around the world realizing that it's not just a hypothetical thing that they are vaguely aware in the back of their minds that some of their communications may be intercepting but knowing that they are now essentially that everything they're doing that they themselves are the object of nonstop stop privacy invasion no doubt not just by the nsa but by everybody
1: yeah well i mean uh, in the wake of the of the big whoop de doo France m- managed to, I think, within the same twenty four hour period, castigate uh, the Obama administration for uh, its NSA activities in France, and then reveal that, of course, France's signals uh, intelligence group, you know, vacuums up every single piece of electronic data, you know, passing through France, including one assumes President Obama's cell phone when he's uh, visiting Paris for whatever reason. So, I, I think a lot of this is still the sort of we have to pretend to be shocked. Uh, so that the rubes who vote for us will, will, will be angry at other people instead of us for doing it. I mean, we spied on Churchill, for God's sake, during the war. The, the, the shock that we are tapping an unsecured cell phone, it, it would be harder to not tap an unsecured cell phone, I think, with, you know, the current sort of NSA antennas that they put on top of embassies than to, uh, than to tap it and then just say, oh, it's just an- Angela Merkel texting about the, you know, inadequacies of, you know, her uh, her, her chef or whoever, and, uh, you know, just dump it off. I, the, the, a lot of this seems, at least from my, you know, transatlantic perspective, to look like, you know, stuff that is generated for German domestic consumption by the German media and by uh, Merkel, who just went through a re-election campaign, and obviously she won. But, you know, it never hurts to shore up your uh, your cred.
0: But I, I would turn that around, though, and say that, in fact, that they have committed the ultimate crime against politicians, which is of embarrassing them and diminishing them in front of their public. And that because of that, right, the problem for um, Merkel is not, oh boy, here I have this opportunity to saber battle, but that it makes her look weak and stupid. And it makes all of the international ruling class look weak and stupid and embarrassed. And if there's Uh, anything that they hate, uh, they hate being embarrassed. And that's why Mm -hmm. Edward Snowden is uh, stuck in his uh, apartment in uh, Moscow and why uh, Chelsea Manning is going to uh, serve life essentially in in an isolation chamber. And that uh, I think that the key is that it's happening to them and happening to them all the time and happening in a way that they can no longer deny that they're going to have to be seen to do something, and the question is whether that thing is going to be kabuki or is actually going to change things, or if it'll just be some sort of carve-out, which I guess is more likely, because again, something we see about the ruling class is that it's very quick to unite to change things that affect it. So during the sequestration in the U.S., the fixes to the air traffic control system happened almost instantaneously when the congress needed to go home for the weekend and that got fixed awful quick and i'm wondering if indeed some sort of a uh, new change or protocol is going to come through as a result of this
1: i uh, i would be interested to see some way that they could make it happen technically much less some way they could uh justify it on a national security level i mean in theory you know, Angela Merkel should be on the top 10 list of whoever you're tapping in Germany, uh, assuming you've, uh, you you know, not counting the Al-Qaeda cells that are, you know, festooned throughout uh, Deutschland. But, you know, you should always be trying to find out what enemy or even allied government uh, leaders are up to since they're the people who are going to decide what the trade treaty looks like or whatever other sorts of national interest uh, negotiation you're going to have with them. I grant you that certainly, you know, uh, Merkel is both, you know, angry at being made to look stupid by the NSA and has probably legitimate, you know, personal reasons, having grown up under Stasi surveillance for thinking it's much itchier when it's out in the newspaper than, uh, other, you know, a West German, uh, born politician might. And certainly, you know, the Obama administration has not covered itself with glory in terms of, uh, either controlling Snowden in the first place or minimizing the fallout from his revelations or getting ahead of the story, for example. But, you know, at some level... I don't think that there's a technical carve-out that can be made, and if there is, I certainly hope that whoever's running the NSA just, you know, pushes back on it, and then we just lie about it like we've apparently been, you know, happy to do since the 80s when they put Echelon into existence, or was it the 70s, whenever it was. I mean, we've literally been doing this, this specific thing, you know, before, practically before cell phones were even a thing, and the fact that someone in a position of power in a major industrial democracy doesn't understand that using an unsecured cell phone means you're basically broadcasting it to not just us, but also to the GRU, who also have embassies in Berlin. Um, You know, it it just beggars the imagination that she didn't already know about that. Yeah, being made to look stupid is is a sad and awful thing for, uh, you know, policymakers, but, you know, the the Internet is not done making them look stupid, let's put it that way.
0: And uh, the next thing that we've uh, been encouraged to look at is the, uh, and this is a request from friend of Pelgrane, Wade Rocket. He wants us to look at the story of uh, Yofi Yosef or Jofi Joseph. I'm not sure which, so uh, I mispronounced it once and pronounced it correctly. Uh, And this is the uh, recently fired uh, White House staffer who turns out to have been uh, running an anonymous Twitter account for years in which he Uh, disparaged uh, members of his administration and sometimes in a misogynistic and uh, invariably in a mocking way, uh, falsely accused uh, one of his immediate superiors of uh, leaking the Stuxnet story, which is the story of the uh, cyber war against the Iranian nuclear program. Um, And he's finally been caught out and fired after a period of years. In a way, it seems like oh, well, they can read Angela Merkel's Merkel's text, but can't they find this guy in their own uh, department? But that would actually be kind of difficult to uh, find him in the department. So I guess the thing about this story is, to me, is that it does not immediately seem like an inspiration for Knight's Black Agent so much as for an episode in the next season of Veep.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that this whole thing is fairly comical. I mean, the guy was uh, the classic... um, Uh, you know, self-loving nerd who was, uh, he was a non nuclear non proliferation nerd instead of a D and D nerd. But we've all met the kind of guy who thinks that just because he has mastered some particular arcane, uh, fact or, or set of facts that the world owes him, you know, uh, venti uh, on the house. And so he, you know, had a lot of issues with uh, people and especially apparently women, but you know, such is the, such, such is the way in Washington, DC, certainly. um, and then they didn't take that long to find him. I think he was tweeting for about twelve months, eighteen months, something like that. And he had a you know a, a following of maybe sixteen hundred people, most of whom were media people. And then they decided that it was a big deal once he started, as you point out, accusing his his boss. It turned out of of leaking the Stuxnet. And of course, the hilarious thing is that this guy's leaks, while impolitic and certainly grounds for termination at any workplace in the land, are vastly less important than whoever did leak Stuxnet. But whoever did that has not been fired or even tracked down, so obviously there's a sense of priorities. I mean, you know, I guess it's nice to know that Obama can fire somebody, um, but I would not have picked that guy over perhaps the guy that ran guns to Mexico or got an ambassador killed or any of the other hilarious goofs or, you know, destroyed his entire first-term agenda with a crummy website. Um, You know, there's a lot of people I would have thought would have been in line ahead of Jofi Yosef or vice versa. And, you know, the whole story is one of those deals that I think it's a media story because media people were the people who, you know, liked him making fun of Dana Perino or Valerie Jarrett or whoever.
0: Uh, There's a great greasy detail that if we're going to take this then and make it into the subject matter of something more genre-ish by dramatizing it that we want to keep, which is that he also had another Twitter handle, uh, DC Hobbyist in which he evaluated the relative uh, quality of escort services all around North America. In fact, there's a, a Toronto connection. He uh, <laughs> uh, was very happy to to learn of the tsunami of gorgeous and sensual escorts available here in, uh, in Toronto. So who knows? Maybe we might... Uh, there's no uh, uh, sex scandal element yet to the Rob Ford story, but... Weird things keep happening. Maybe they'll fingers. turn out to be crack buddies or something.
1: <laughs> well, he was, he was married, which is, um, and to a Republican, or, or at least to a Republican Senate staffer, which is not always the same thing. But that is an interesting sort of um, uh, side note on that. I, I think that in the magical world of role-playing games, if you want to do a not nat sec Wonk type of story, first of all, um, they're going to be tweeting things like, you know, the location of Area 51 or whatever else. And they're probably going to be burying it in a bunch of ridiculous tweets. And so it's going to be sort of like trying to sift out the one true thing in you know, the complete works of David Icke or um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, depending on the flavor of your campaign. And maybe there might be another situation where um if you're playing in, say, a, a sort of a cyberpunky uh type world of, of, you know, true names and computers are magical type universe where, you know, the act of creating a social media identity creates a tulpa. And so you have these sort of figures that are flitting around in the corridors of power, you know, literally, and um, that they have their own agendas and that maybe, you know, after it rather than 1600 people, let's say 16,000 people or 160,000 people start following Hangar 13 wonk, then Hangar 13 wonk becomes an entity within the cyberspace or within astral space. And somehow you interact with them. And when you find the guy who's been doing the original leaking, it turns out that he hasn't leaked anything to the account, but it keeps updating, and then you have to find out, well, maybe it's a a ring within Majestic that's taken over his feed for their own purposes, or maybe it's uh, actually a Tulpa, or maybe one of the gray aliens uh, is using uh, the connection that has been made telepathically to send, you know, I don't know, GPS coordinates or something.
0: And the easiest way to rip something from the headlines is to do what the Law & Order franchise did when it was a long running concern, and that is take a story in the news and add a murder right uh so uh natsin wonk has been killed, and now you have to sift through all of his twitters and you may find you know at the crime scene that he was nat set wonk, and then you have to uh this is the obvious lead that you need to follow, and then you have to figure out how his anonymous Twitter account got him killed, and then depending on what the genre is, that would lead him to Vampires and Knights Black Agents. It would lead him to lead you to an Esoterror cell in the Ezoterrors and so on.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, adding a murder or adding um something in which Wonk, you know, does a directed tweet or even a DM to one of the player characters and he's like, you know, yeah, you should really take a look at the, you know, um at the NSA's black appropriation for Project Sarkomand, and then he goes offline. And it's like, well, did he die? Was he caught? Was he fired? Um, what's Project Sarcamand? I mean, you've got all kinds of different questions. So the other way besides the murder is the enigmatic direct message that then can't be followed up without the players getting off their um, uh, uh, shopping uh, sated uh, behinds and going out into the mean streets.
0: And uh, you can do the wrong man thing where one of the player characters' own Twitter accounts is hacked and national security information or information about your monster hunting organization or whatever is leaked through it. And you are now under a cloud with your own organization and have to uh, prove that it uh, wasn't you who did it and uh, prove your innocence and, uh, and clear your name and find out who tweeted the incriminating tweet.
1: And I guess the other possibility would be that if you have player characters who have some position of power in the world, one of their own subordinates is sending snotty tweets about their player characters and, re- and revealing things that they would rather not, you know, the uh, enemies out there, the you know, Lothotep or whoever, be reading in their Twitter stream. And so they have to sort of do their own mole hunt and figure out who their NatSec wonk is and figure out what his motivations are and can they use, can they, you know, turn him and use him to feed the bad guys, uh, you know, uh, bury him intel for example.
0: Uh, Well, my current motivation is to switch to the next segment. Our next sponsor is Kota Dama Heavy Industries and their game Ryutama, the natural fantasy RPG translated by Matt Sanchez and Andy Kitkowski.
1: A game that focuses on travel and exploration of a fantastic natural world instead of combat and treasure. What? That's crazy talk.
0: Crazy talk indeed, but indeed the Game Master interacts with the world through his own character called the Ryujin or Dragon Person.
1: Eight different classes are available to players from Artisans and Merchants, To farmers and nobles, the characters are the NPCs that the heroes would encounter in a fantasy village. Simple
0: rules for traveling make the journey between destinations fun, but perilous.
1: It includes new rules, classes, and scenarios unique to the English translation. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Corwin Pendragon asks Ken and Robin what books and writers have had a large impact on your understanding of the structure of story? Robin, what books and writers have had a large impact on your understanding of the structure of story?
0: There are two categories uh, and uh, there are books that I have reacted against. uh, (laughs) And there are books that uh, I think have uh, served me well in sort of directing the way that I think about things. Uh, The thing that I would cite as, A book that I have a big problem with is uh, Sid Field's Screenwriting Manual, which Mm -hmm. for a long time was sort of the standard document. And it had sort of a pernicious effect, I think, on uh, writing for uh, mainstream American movies in that uh, the book itself tells you, here's the three-act structure, here's how to do it, here's on what page to have the turn, here's on what page to have the other turn, but it looks like a much more interesting structure suggested by Stanley Kubrick is coming in, a more of a uh, sort of a series of tableaus that fold into one another. And this will probably be the future of movie scripts. And what people who are reading scripts in Hollywood did is they spotted the first part, which is, oh, look, here's how we can tell if a, a script is good, if it has a turn on this page and a turn on this page and follows this uh, very tight structure and skipped the other part. And so um, it had, I think, an an influence that I've always sort of chafed against in saying that there is one structure. And to me, the most interesting films are the films that uh, set that structure aside um, for a very simple form of storytelling and making sure that you, if you have no idea what you want your structure to be, that's as good as any. But I think the structure should arise out of the content and that the, the best films either allied that structure so much that you can't really see it, or they throw it out the window altogether. Um, Ken, is there a particular uh, uh, writing manual that has been sort of an anti-manual for you?
1: Um, I think the one that I've reacted against uh, to that extent, I mean, is the Joseph Campbell uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces monomyth structure. Uh, First of all, Joseph Campbell is a horrible human being. He's an anti-Semite and a bad anthropologist, and he you know, is even worse than most Jungians. And then also trying to fit everything into the stupid uh, heroic monomyth uh, sort of deforms uh, character, it deforms story, and it deforms adventure to fit this sort of Procrustian bed that uh, was assembled out of the worst kind of uh, structuralist anthropology. I mean, I, I, I react against Campbell. I haven't written, obviously, any epic fantasy, uh, nor am I likely to, but any, you know, heroic protagonist that I write is not going to fit within the monomyth except to the extent that the monomyth is so simultaneously constraining and and, and lumpy that you can jam anything you want into it, as Campbell did. Um, that, that I think, is the thing that I react against. But I react against it not as a writer, but just as a consumer of, of long-form narrative when I do.
0: Yeah, I... I... Unlike you, find interesting things in Jung, but definitely agree with you on Campbell. That he... I find
1: tons of interesting things in Jung, but I find interesting things in Velikovsky.
0: Um, useful things. I find yeah. useful things <laughs> in uh, <laughs> positively useful things in Jung, but <laughs> I, I agree that's with a, you on
1: Campbell. That's that's a different uh, that's a different hut, that's I suspect hut. as well.
0: And so, to cite something that's been a positive influence, I mean the the one book, which is definitely not a writing manual, it is a work of criticism, and unlike a lot of works of criticism of the 20th century is actually penetrable, (laughs) is Northrop Frye's Anatomy of Criticism.
1: Yes, which was obviously going to be something that I join you with.
0: And uh, he looks at sort of the broad structures of different literary genres and examines how they work and how you can identify them by their structures and identify them by their imagery. And that has very much shaped my thinking in looking at narrative and being sort of a classicist of narrative and looking from, you know, what is it that we're trying to do? What are the traditional building blocks that exist for this particular type of story, not for all stories? And what do I want to include? And what do I want to leave out? And just reading Anatomy of Criticism has shaped the way that I look at narrative and look at genre and has been an enormous influence and is also a a slim volume and something that I think is accessible to uh, anyone who is interested enough in story and structure to pose that question, I think would have an interesting time with that book. Uh, His two books on the Bible and its influence on English literature are not quite so, immediately useful to the writer as uh, anatomy of criticism is the first one's called the great code and the other one's words with power, but still uh, worth a look, even though there's somewhat heavier sledding.
1: Yeah. I have found uh fry to be one of those guys that he's pretty much a hundred percent readable regardless of what he's doing. Although like you say, some of them are slightly heavier lifting than others. I think that um, well, anatomy of criticism is is really, really good. I, I guess, obviously, the the baseline for, for literary criticism in the West should always be Aristotle's Poetics. But I, there's that one little chapter in Anatomy, which I don't know if you remember it, but it's where he sort of looks at what classical comedy was and from that reverse engineers the content of Aristotle's lost work on comedy. So he's like, given that we know how Aristotle wrote Poetics based on tragedy... Here's what he must have been writing if Greco-Roman comedy, you know, takes this form. Here's probably what Aristotle's, you know, lost comedia would have been. And that's just such a freaking tour de force. And it happens, I I think it's maybe within, what, a dozen pages in... Uh, anatomy of criticism and and, uh, uh, another guy would have turned that into a trilogy for gosh sakes. And then when you read it, literally every single romantic comedy that you've ever watched suddenly flashes into your head and all of it makes sense structurally um, uh, together. I mean, it's just an incredible little tiny piece of what is probably actually four or five really good books on criticism, all interrelated and, and tied in together. And also I would uh, mention in uh, a fry context, the Secular Scripture, which is his uh, study of the structure of romance, which sort of blows up the sort of writing that we are concerned with, which is to say adventure fiction with islands and pirates and cute girls, and, um, the, and that uh, and he looks at the structure of, of of what he calls the romance, and in fairness, what everyone called romance until we decided to change all the names in the 19th century, and that and that sort of is a is another little piece of it that you can read without necessarily having to go all the way into what exactly medievals meant when they said monad which is a little bit of heavy sledding for people who have not been uh following along behind uh john d like a like a happy duck the way that the, i have
0: the great thing about fry was that he was a, a teacher he was a professor at the university of toronto and he believed in teaching and he believed in teaching undergrads and in fact uh the great code and words with power came out of a course that he designed when he realized that undergrads no longer had a personal life grounding in the Bible the way that readers of English literature would have done from the outset of English literature until this century. And he created a course to rectify that. And uh, even uh, at the height of his fame and near the end of his career, he always had one lecture course uh, packed to the gills. That was that taught. Uh, I think first year students even. And in fact, my uh, my wife uh, had a course with Northrop Frye. So that's a uh, uh, an exciting uh, little thing that she can put in her resume along with having been at Live Aid.
1: Little little uh, personal connection. And Northrop Frye is almost certainly going to have accomplished more than Live Aid. So that's all to the good. Yeah, I would um, uh, sort of dropping precipitously from the general to specific. One thing that I read, and I didn't even know that when I was reading it, I was reading about narratology and uh, story structure, but it has always come back to me, and it came back to me very intensely, obviously, when I was working on the Star Trek games for Last Unicorn and Decipher, was David Gerald's book, uh, The Trouble with Tribbles, which is just the story of how he made, how he wrote, and you know, how, then how Roddenberry and company, or more likely Rob, Bob Justman and Gene Kuhn, made... The episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, and it takes basically one story that I already knew by heart and breaks down every aspect of his creative, not just his creative life as a, uh, uh, his creative, uh, you know, how he lived until he sold the, the script, what he was up to, what kind of science fiction he read, everything, and breaks down where that story came from, how he turned it into a functional TV script how then Bob Justman showed him that his idea of a functional TV script was still grossly dysfunctional, how he turned it again into a tighter, more filmable TV script, and then how the inevitable compromises in filming sort of affected that story going forward, just as an education, even in how TV worked in 1967. And, of course, TV has gotten infinitely more god-awful since then in a lot of ways.
0: There's a lot of great lessons to mine from that, not just in terms of... Uh, writing, mm-hmm. uh, one of the great little details I recall is that at one point his action line was just, Kirk reacts. Mm-hmm. And uh, although it's implicit how Kirk would react from having a pile of tribbles dropped on his head, he was told that what you can't just say that. You've got to actually, if it's worth indicating that there's a reaction shot, which it probably isn't, they know to cut to reaction shot, you have to specify what it is. But that's also really still, I think, valuable in terms of showing you how to navigate the personal and political process of collaborating with others especially others where you are doing a piece of freelance work for them
1: yeah and the, the the sort of the notion i mean he taught me what an a plot b plot and c plot were he taught me how scene beats work how you lay them out on index cards and and move them forward and i took basically i took all of that knowledge and i dropped it into the narrator's guide for star trek the next generation the role-playing game from Last Unicorn, which um, has apparently, uh, which got great reviews at the time and apparently sort of transmitted that uh, to, um, to to future audiences everywhere. Although the odds that someone has read that and not read David Gerald, I would have thought would have been very high. But if you haven't read uh, Trouble with Tribbles and you are not so lost to civilization as to not know the Trouble with Tribbles, then I would hasten out and so you can dig that up in your local used bookstore or Amazon Z shop.
0: A final book that I cite, which is another big example of taking something that was written for one purpose, which was then repurposed for something else, and I repurposed it yet again, is a book called Audition by Michael Shurtleff, an acting coach. And its purpose is to show actors how to break down scenes just in order to deliver a compelling audition when they audition for a stage or screen role Uh, but it does that job so well that uh, stage directors in particular took that and expanded its application to how to interpret text in an interesting compelling way for the stage throughout the rehearsal process Mm -hmm. and it's all about breaking each moment in a speech into different beats where you identify what your intention is as a character, what you want, and what your tactic is, how you're setting out to get that. And it doesn't take a big leap from there to get to drama system, which is all about scenes. Now, you're not interpreting a text in drama system, but drama system's rules are designed to, in a very simple way, get you into Uh, scenes that you're creating yourself that are very interesting in that way and hopefully have a lot of beats in them. So that was actually uh, hugely influential in uh, the creation of drama system. And also a book uh, where the uh, novelist Michael Andachi interviews uh, the legendary film editor Walter Murch, um, mm-hmm. is uh, also something that I got a lot of, and I think it's, I think it's just called The Conversations. Yeah, good title. A good title. And that's where I got the terminology uh, petitioner and grantor from. And the mm-hmm. petitioner is the person who goes into the scene wanting something, and the grantor is a person who either uh, gives that thing in drama system then earning a drama token, or rebuffs them, which would give the petitioner a drama token.
1: Yeah, I think... Um... The uh, just reading, you know, sort of. I, I guess we've sort of broken it down now. Reading really good critics and reading, uh, really good creators is the best way to do this. Um, if you count Aristotle as a critic, which I suppose you can. Um, I my other sort of example of that, uh, you know, sort of um uh, approach would be Stephen King's book *Dance Macabre*, which is about how horror works, or at least how horror works for Stephen King. And given that pretty much all American horror has been working in Stephen King's image since, uh, say 1980 or so. Um, that's probably worth uh, reading. It's certainly worth reading if you're a horror fan, if you're a fan of, um, Stephen King to look at sort of what his influences are. He doesn't really break down structure so much, but he breaks down, I guess I'd call it nature of horror in that he looks at these individual things and says, why are they scary? Why are they scary? And of course being Stephen King, he can't do it, you know, without just an immense amount of uh, autobiography, and if you don't care about Stephen King's life, that will perhaps make it harder to tease out the um, uh, the parts one does care about, but on the other hand, um, if you are a fan of King, as I am, uh, that will just be more charming uh, anecdotage, and you can sort of separate it out as effortlessly as you do the Springsteen quotes in The Stand or whatever.
0: Yeah, I'm not as uh, huge a King guy, but really did find that book useful as a thematic survey, and he is really good about taking other writers and not scoring against them because they don't write like Stephen King.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, you know, that's one of those things that um H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft was able to do it and um Lovecraft critics apparently can't, which is an interesting Uh, difference between the practitioner as critic and the critic as critic, I guess. Uh,
0: Well, I I would point to little bits of that uh, Lovecraft essay where I think he is actually scoring against people for not writing the Lovecraft way, but that too seems like another topic for another day and hence the end of this segment. Once more, we creep up a set of creaky stairs where a portrait of Madame Blavatsky glowers down at us from the landing. We pass a strange pentacle painted in a mysterious red substance and enter the dusty confines of the inner sanctum of the consulting occultist. And this week we're going to look at a book of mysteries, specifically the Voynich manuscript. Uh, now, can you borrow borrowed the copy of the Voynich manuscript and hold it now in your hands in order to do this segment? Uh, what institution did you borrow it from?
1: I borrowed it from Yale's Beinecke Library, which is where it is uh, normally stored for those who do not have consulting occultist-level clearance, as I do. Um, it's about uh, nine by seven, if you're interested, two inches thick. So it's about the size of a large uh, paperback book perhaps, if you're interested in stealing it.
0: And as you handle it with your white gloves and flip the pages, what do you see inside?
1: Uh, Inside, uh, the Voynich manuscript is an illustrated text. Uh, The illustrations sort of fall into a bunch of different categories, but there's an awful lot of plants. Uh, There's some stars and moons and suns and astrological symbols. Uh, There are an awful lot of fat, naked women bathing in tubs connected by pipes, which is uh, weird, if not particularly... um, uh, occult, as far as I know.
0: that uh, may The standard of beauty may help to date it?
1: Yes. There are other sort of um, weird uh, circles uh, in it, uh, which are not as clearly planets. Um, there are, uh, apparently, there's a centerfold, which one would have thought was associated with the tubby naked women, but is apparently a uh, sort of cabalistic looking diagram, um, and then uh, ind- indications, uh, going back to sort of the herbal quality. There's uh, individual bits of plants, seed pods, roots, uh, leaves, uh, uh, lots of jars, and uh, the standard sort of weird occult uh, moons, clovers, uh, diamonds, uh, etc.
0: So how did this come into the possession of uh, that library at
1: Yale? Well, I have have left off the best part about it, which is that the 240 pages of text are written by hand in an indecipherable, at this printing, uh, language. Uh, We don't know what uh, language it is. We don't know what alphabet it is. It is um, a entire mystery. It's like sort of full-on uh, the carbon dating says that it's from about the early 15th century in Italy, but that of course just applies to the vellum, which means that we don't know particularly when when it was written or, or when it was illuminated, if those are two different things. There are also probably about 30 pages missing from the thing, so it is obviously the missing pages that contain the a um, uh, little fat woman in a tub means A, dandelion head means B, part that one would perhaps have wanted if one were to use it for something.
0: So what what does the art style tell us about uh, when it was probably created? Does that match the vellum?
1: The art style, to to my mind, it looks fairly similar to sort of medieval illustration. I don't think that it's, you know, that difficult to say that it would have been done in the 15th century. I don't think it would have been that difficult to say it was done in the 14th century, which, or even the 13th, which a lot of people said that it was, or down to, say, the 16th or 17th. Obviously, it being handwritten mitigates a little bit against it being done as late as the 17th, but since it had to be in a whole new alphabet, you know, you never can tell. Um, we know uh, its first full-on appearance in the historical record, as opposed to the Carbon-14ing record, is uh, that it uh, has a date in it of 1608, um, and it's uh, signed by a guy named Jacobus Horsuchy. um And he probably uh, got it from the Emperor Rudolf II, who we know paid uh, 600 ducats for it. And since he died in 1612, we expect that, that 1608 date and that 1612 uh, death of Rudolf II are close enough that it, that's probably a, a good solid chain of ownership. Um, most likely from Jacob Horzakichi, um, or Jake um, uh, Hork, as we used to call him back in the day. Um, it went from him to an alchemist named George Barish. Uh, he um, asked Athanasius Kircher to decipher it. Kircher asked him to send him the whole book, not just a little piece, and he said, I'm not sending you my whole book. And Barish died, and it went to um, the rector of Charles University who went on and sent it to Athanasius Kircher, and Kircher gave it to the Jesuits, and the Jesuits sold it off behind the the you know, sort of under the table to raise money to a guy named Wilfred Voynich, who was a Polish revolutionary and a bibliophile, which is a pretty good resume.
0: And uh, when was this? that This handover happened?
1: Uh, It got sold in 1912 um, to uh, Voynich, and as a side note, his wife, uh, Ethel, was the daughter of the mathematician George Boole, and the girlfriend, one hopes before her marriage, of Riley the Ace of Spies. And so um, that is a a lovely little tie in for the Voynich manuscript, given that it has passed through the hands of Rudolph II and Athanasius Kircher. The fact that um, uh, uh, Sidney Riley's um, uh, girlfriend's husband uh, bought it is kind of fun. Uh, at least it's fun to me.
0: So, aside from the fact that it is an indecipherable code, what is a cult about
1: it? Well, I mean, I guess technically everything is a cult about it because it is literally hidden. I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that there's a letter sort of folded into it dated in 1666 by uh, the guy, uh, Marchi, who uh, was the rector of Charles University, whose theory was that it uh, was written by Roger Bacon, the magus and uh, proto-scientist who invented a brazen head and a telescope and all kinds of neat things, and then um, got himself sort of uh, immured in France for a bit and that one of the sort of theories before they did the carbon dating was that the way that a 13th century English manuscript got to Rudolf II was that it was carried there by our buddy John Dee when he went to Bohemia in 1584. And that is, I think, sort of the way that the Voynich manuscript swims into the ken of uh, excitable occultists and their friends, that um, either Dee or possibly uh, his buddy Edward Kelly, who was after all a convicted forger, might have swamped this thing together or picked it up in an obscure book uh, library somewhere and turned it into ready cash in Bohemia.
0: So uh, speaking of the annals of excitability, how does the Voynich manuscript figure into uh, the uh, theories and daydreams of various occult writers? What are the, the best uh, myths and theories about it?
1: Well, I think um, some of the best theories are the ones that, began as sensible theories. There was a guy um, named William Newbold who was sort of the first guy to try to decipher it. And he said that the, um, uh, the whole book was the secret of uh, microscopy before uh, Van Leeuwenhoek and that it was all about bacteria and germs. And it turned out that he wasn't reading um, the manuscript. He was reading uh, the cracks in the vellum. <laughs> right <laughs> he was just he, he was um uh, literally um engaging in that most occult of uh of of habits uh pattern matching uh of the of random stuff to find meaning and that was the meaning that he found uh, in um in, in the Voynich manuscript um other people have said that it is a code book that you could make it or you could make its uh language forms with a cardan grill which is where uh, in early uh, 16th century Uh, code breaking, you'd cut out a hole uh, in a piece, uh, cut a bunch of holes in a piece of paper, you'd lay it over a text and you'd copy the words that you found in the text and that would be your your message. The theory being you could do that with a bunch of texts in a bunch of different languages and copy them all out in your pretend uh, fat lady alphabet and that would be the Voynich manuscript. So if it is a coded 16th century text, then goodness knows what might be in it. Um, It might have been written down, uh, one a scholar thought that it was connected to Hildegard of Biggin, who got a magical language, the... Oh, I forget what it was. It's like the linguus ignota, and she got it from angels. And so it might be angel talk, and if it's angel talk, then it might be Enochian, which brings us back around to John Dee, or possibly to Aleister Crowley. Um,
0: so the uh, the women in the tubs in this would be sort of cherubs who've aged
1: out. Exactly, right. and Or perhaps just enjoying a, a relaxing bath before going back to a big day of cherubing. And there was another guy who... Uh, made up a translation, and I think made up is probably the ideal way to put it, Um, (laughs) uh, that it was actually a Cathar Bible and that the women in the tubs had slit their wrists and were getting ready to die um, so that they could be proper Cathar perfecti, which is probably wrong on a couple of levels uh, in addition to the fact that he basically just made up the translation or did a slightly more sophisticated job of pareidolia than poor uh, William Newbold did. Colin Wilson of course, uh, in his great book uh, the Philosopher's Stone said that the Voynich manuscript was actually, I think, the Necronomicon, or was something at least as good. It it shows up in um in in his novel, and there's a big long bit about how when you uh, look at it, it, you get the sense of unutterable evil and all the other stuff uh, like that, that that is that is proper fun.
0: And and as you page through it now, are you getting a a vibe of
1: unutterable evil? I'm getting a vibe of there's there's a Lovecraftian vibe to it because if you look at the plants. Um, they are not earth plants. They Some of them look like they might be earth plants, but it really it's, it's it looks more like one of those books that you occasionally buy where some uh, artist decides to work out the entire ecosystem of a non-existent planet or of, of a, a magical realm or something like that. And so some of the plant bits are sort of recognizable, but they tie into other plant bits. So it's very much like... I mean the vibe that I get from it is a Borgesian vibe, not so much a Lovecraftian vibe, that it's a reference manual from Ukbar that just sort of fell through the um uh uh the the, 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 the lawn hole that has been opened up by the Encyclopedia Society and that eventually we are all just going to understand the Voyage manuscript and it will never have been a mystery. I think that it'll it'll pass through that phase state uh without ever um being actually solved, qua solved. That's the sense that I get as I uh balance it in my hand
0: um so you can from there you can sort of easily extrapolate a narrative where uh, someone gets their hands on a copy of uh, perhaps not that voynich manuscript because uh, other than you uh, yell is going to hold on to that but you might get the uh another version the full version and then a shimmering space might appear before you as you realize that it's a travel guide to the place you're about to be sucked into
1: yeah that that's that's sort of the, the notion that it's um uh a travel guide or, a, or 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 you know a, a big bunch of it looks like it could be a herbal it's just an herbal for plants that don't exist or it's an herbal that unlike virtually every other herbal has deliberately careless and terrible illustrations which is usually the other way around in, in an herbal the illustrations are pretty much always identifiable it's the it's the text that is dodgy but in this case um it it's the plants that look weird too Uh, I I think that that's one strong possibility. Another, of course, is that there's a, um, uh, that it's a description of some, you know, actual other planet that uh, someone got uh, taken to by some means that we don't understand now. There's a great, uh, I think it's a Poole Anderson short story in which um, Leonardo da Vinci invents uh, anti-gravity and then covers it up because he decides after seeing the Italian wars that man is not yet ready for such an incredible invention. And so the notion that there are sort of there was a medieval space program that got abandoned for whatever reason, and that this is this is its um, uh, this is its Tom Hanks uh, documentary. That's all that's left. That that's sort of a fun idea.
0: Um, so before you have to uh, return that to the library, is there anything else we need to know about the uh, Voynich manuscript before we wrap up?
1: I think the best thing about the Voynich manuscript is that there are so many things tied into it. I mean, there's. Uh, there's the Cathars, there's the Jesuits, there's the NSA, which has, you know, obviously got guys deciphering it now, or trying to decipher it now. You've got 34 missing pages, you've got the Necronomicon. It's, it's a great uh, universal joint for anything that you want to do with it, on pretty much, I, th- I think any game. I mean, you could take it from straight on D&D, where it's just a bunch of uh, plants in some other plane that you can translate with a Read Languages spell, and annoy the living crap out of everyone that's tried to do it since 1912. Or maybe <laughs> it is um, even uh, magically resistant and you have to go find the, the one demon or elf or whoever that wrote it and uh, and get them to give up the key.
0: And then you become master of all
1: plants. And then you become master of all plants. Um, the, the fact that the ladies have been read as... Um, uh, as bleeding out maybe means that there's some sort of vampire connection. The astronomical thing could be a time or a date or a map. I mean, you could do anything with this thing.
0: And, and how much does it look to you as, as you look at the
1: pages that the ladies are bleeding out? I, it doesn't look that much like the ladies are <laughs> bleeding out. I
0: think that, <laughs> But why let that get in the way of a good vampire You know,
1: I, I think that this guy um, just... I mean, the ink is made with iron gall, and so a lot of it turns uh, red or reddish brown just as it ages. And I think that probably the ladies at the time... We're, um, uh, we're bathing in perfectly nice uh, dark blue baths, and now it has uh, gotten creepy with age. Although, who knows? Maybe that's something that the Voynich manuscript is doing intentionally, right? As as you open it uh, and as you study it, maybe it it changes with age, and that those changes are part of the key. And once you, someone is, once we have enough observations of it over a long enough time, we'll say, "Oh my God, look at this! The chromatic changes are." are the key to deciphering it. I mean, it's just, it's that kind of fun. Um, there's, uh, yeah, I, I think the thing that I would, I would, I would say about it is that you pretty much, you can go anywhere with it. It's just that good. Uh, well,
0: on that note, we will uh, leave our listeners to, uh, go and do anything, uh, with the Voynich manuscript and we will, uh, wrap up another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
1: Steven Jankowitz, Slabtown Games. Kotadama Heavy Industries, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pellegraine Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help
0: keep this Gollum going by clicking the donate button at kenrobintalkaboutstuff.com.
1: Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height,
1: and he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.